0: Now, as you're turning to Genesis chapter 5, when you, um, if you're walking out today and you were here last week and, and you got your Father's Day portrait made, you can pick up that picture on the back wall. But as you're, as you're picking it out, be reminded that we also are looking at two sort of family portraits of our own in these opening chapters of Genesis. These are two families, they are two lines of people, in fact, Those who were of the natural flesh, born of Cain, turned apart from God, not following him, not worshiping him. And then as we're going to see this morning, the line of Seth, those who worship God, who've turned toward him, they're part of the, the spiritual line. And it's a good reminder for us this morning, a couple of things. Number one, every person in the history of humanity is a part of one of those two lines. You're either a part of the natural line or the spiritual line. Ultimately, at the end of your life, only one thing is going to matter. Did you or did you not know the living God and worship him through his son, Jesus Christ? Did you walk with him? That's one reminder. A second reminder here is that this this descent from these two human lines has less to do with physical descent and genealogy and much more to do with the heart and with the spirit. So in other words, just because you've grown up in a Christian family, grown up in a Christian home, attended church your whole life, that does not make you a part of the family of God. We become part of the family of God as we turn to him in faith through his son, Jesus Jesus Christ. And so last week, as we unpacked the natural line, the line of of Cain let's let's this is a little shout out to all the nerds here didn't it feel a little bit like the shadow of Mordor was descending over this place right like this the the darkness filled the land you know we saw how Abel was killed and the line of the Messiah the seed the spirit was seemingly extinguished but at the end of chapter 4 we see the tiniest ray of hope don't we A flicker of light. It's kind of like Frodo Baggins carrying that ring across the land of the orcs. It's just a tiny piece of hope. And here's what we ended with last week from Genesis 4. This is after Abel has died and we've seen the descent of Cain and his line into abject evil and depravity. In verse 25 of chapter 4 it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That little phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, it it literally means God's people, God's family coming together to worship. And so what we see is that despite the reign of evil on the earth, God is raising up a remnant. God is constituting a new family through the spiritual line of Seth. And what we have this morning as we come to Genesis chapter 5 is everyone's favorite part of the Bible, a genealogy, right? Now, and, and, and this might con- the idea of a genealogy might conjure up some sort of dread for you. Maybe it reminds you Sunday afternoons growing up and you went to grandma's house and she broke out the family, al- family albums and made you look at every single picture, right? Or maybe you were, went to a family reunion and you were sort of made to memorize the entire family tree. I don't know what your experience is with genealogies, but oftentimes when we come to this, these sections of Scripture, we sort of tune out. They don't seem relevant, they seem distant, they seem abstract. But what we're going to see this morning, what I want you to see, is nothing less than God's grace made known to us. We are here this morning as a direct result of what God did some thousands of years ago in the line of Seth. And so we're going to be in chapter 5. I'm going to read actually the entire chapter. We're not going to make you stand. I have to forewarn you, I'm realizing as I'm singing this morning, I haven't really practiced reading this out loud. And so just go with it, right? Just just go with it. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Now, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. and Kenan lived after he fathered Mahaliel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahiliel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahaliel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahaliel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Noah saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, admittedly, we come to, to texts like this and they seem distant to us. They're strange names and strange circumstances and strange times, and we might, be feel, might feel like we're being pulled back into some sort of research class in school. But Lord, this is here as a part of your word inspired by your holy spirit given to us for the building up of the body of christ for everything that we need for growth and godliness but lord we we know that ultimately this passage is given to us to point us to jesus and so lord we pray now that you would give us attentive hearts and minds and ears that we might see what you want us to see hear what you want us to hear, apply what you want us to apply. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. As we dive into this passage, and before we kind of get to the meat of it, let's tackle like the elephant in the room, right? What, what's the most obvious thing? What's the, what's the immediate thing that we, that we all ask when we read a passage like this? In fact, if we make it through the genealogy in its entirety, what do we ask? We say, Pastor Paul, what's up with all of these ages? Like, this is, this is bizarro. How is this happening? How does this work? I mean, it seems so distant from us. You know, if someone lives to be 90 years old, what do we say? That's a ripe old age. But here we have Methuselah, and that's the answer to your, to your Bible trivia question, who's the oldest living person in the history of mankind that we know? Methuselah, 969 years. How does this work. Well, when we think about genealogies from a modern perspective, oftentimes we we, we think about, like, if you remember this from the 70s and 80s, Alex Haley wrote um, a series called Roots, and they made a a TV series out of it, and it was all about Alex tracing his lineage as far back as hundreds of years ago to a distant tribe in Africa, um, in fact, where he was able to trace his his ancestors who were first brought over as slaves to the new country. And, and when we think about genealogies in this way, we think about their precision, their details, that they're linear, that we're looking to sort of fill in all the gaps. Some of you may have done your own family ancestry trees or DNA tests where you're, you're trying to trace back with some detail, because really what you're, what you're after is to find out how many famous people you're related to, right? That's, that's really what that's all about. That's not exactly the way ancient Near Eastern genealogies worked. There's similarities, but there's also differences. See, in ancient Near East genealogies, they are real they are true, they are historical, but they're not necessarily exhaustive. See, part of the purpose of genealogies in ancient cultures was not only to communicate about names and places and people and ages, they were also there to communicate about ideas and themes. They were to highlight through through symbolism particular aspects of what was happening in a family's line or a tribe's line. Let me just give you an example. If you, if you go down to, to verse 22, and it talks about Enoch, and we're going to talk about Enoch a little more shortly, but we find that he is the seventh in line from Adam. And we know in Hebrew, Hebrew literature, seven is a, is a sign of completeness. And here we see Enoch as, as, the, as the righteous man par excellence. He is the man who walks with God. He is the man who sort of stands at the head of this this spiritual line. But it's interesting if we go back to Genesis chapter 4 and look at Cain's line, we find that who is seventh in the line from Cain, and it's Lamech. And there's another Lamech in chapter 5, it's a different Lamech. But this Lamech, who's seventh in line, is the pure embodiment of evil, Remember how we looked at that last week, that he, was, he had multiple wives and he was boasting in his capacity to hurt people and dominate people. And so what Moses is trying to do in highlighting these family lines with the seventh positions is to say, here is, here is the epitome of evil, here is the epitome of righteousness, and, and, and he wants to draw our attention to them. It doesn't mean they weren't real. It doesn't mean they weren't historical. They weren't this old. It doesn't mean any of that. I simply say all of that to say we have to be careful that we don't take a, a purely modern approach, walk through Genesis 4 and 5, add up all the ages, and assume that that's an exhaustive account of human history. Okay? We, 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 can't, we can't assume that. It doesn't mean what's here is not true or that it's not historical or that it's not accurate. But we shouldn't assume necessarily that it's complete in the way that we think about that in a modern way. Now, another issue that comes up for people is, well, Pastor Paul, how are it that people are living so long? Let me read a passage from Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, and we're going to get to this um, when, we, when we come back to Genesis in the middle of August. And this is, this is sort of prior to the flood, and we, we read through all these ages, people living for, for great lengths of time, but listen to what God said in Genesis chapter six verse three. He said, "Then the Lord said, "My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he his flesh. His days shall be 120 years." So, so we have this situation where people have been living great lengths of time, and, and, and why is that? Well, one theory, and I think it's a really good one, is that because there are less people on the earth, God is allowing people to live longer. They are populating the earth. They are being fruitful. They're multiplying. God is gathering up of people who know him by name, who call out to him. Um, this is part of the creation mandate that man fill the earth and multiply and be fruitful. But what happens is that as time goes along, man, under the line of Cain, becomes increasingly evil. And God says, I'm going I'm to shut that down. I'm not going to give man the capacity any longer to live to be three, four, five, six hundred years old. So how these ages compare to, to our ages, what calendars did they use, what weeks of the year, all those sort of things... That's not the main point, okay? Let me just say, I'll say all that to say, not the main point. The main point for the Israelites when Moses wrote this and gave it to them in the wilderness as they were leaving Egypt, and the main point for us as we read it now thousands of years later is simply this, what does it mean for you and me to be a part of the family of God? What does that mean? What sort of grace do we see God working through the arc of human history, through the seed, through the promised Messiah that would lead us to be where we are right here, right now, centuries, millennial later? See, the Israelites, when they read this passage, they were to see themselves. They were to see Oh, so that's how we got here. That's what was happening back then. Here is the way that God intervened in human history by his grace to bring us to where we are. And the same thing for us. God wants you this morning to not check out. He wants you to find yourself in Genesis chapter 5. And you may not be able to. You may not know Christ, you may not follow God, you may not worship God. It might be chapter 4 that resonates with you, but chapter 5 is going to leave us with a decision point at the end of this time, and it's simply this. Whose family are you a part of? And what does it mean to be a part of God's family? What does it mean to be here by his grace? And so there's two sort of observations we're going to camp out on and guys, this, this genealogy is rich. I wish we could spend weeks and weeks on it, which I'm sure just breaks your heart that we're not. I wish we could. There is so much here, but let me just offer two observations for us this morning. Here's the first one. God's family is specially loved and uniquely cared for. God's family is specially loved and uniquely cared for. Hey, go back to the text for a second. And you'll notice in chapter 5 that there is a list of people's ages, precise ages, detailed ages. They were born at this time, they had these kind of children, they died at this point, they lived this long, etc. But when you flip your Bibles back to chapter 4 in Genesis 4 and look at the line of Cain, you see no such thing, do you? There are no ages listed. Now, there are certainly events and accomplishments and things done, but no record of how long people lived. You know, you have to really know someone well to ask them their age, don't you? You know, I've I've had this experience, I've sat down with many of you over lunch or coffee or dinner and... And we invariably get around. I may, I may say, how, how, how old are you guys anyway? And you'll say something, and I'll feign, like, surprise. Like, oh, no, I thought you were at least 10 years younger, right? No, it's, it's, it was always genuine, always genuine. We have to know someone really well in order to ask them how old they are. Or there's a bit of awkwardness, isn't there? It's kind of like, who are you? I don't know you. What are you going to to do with this information. There has to be a great deal of familiarity. There has to be some level of trust. There has to be some level of intimacy. So what, what, what is Moses trying to show us here? See, I think he's trying to show us that when it comes to people's age, make no mistake, God has a general love and care for humanity at large. He does. God so loves the world We saw last week in Genesis 4 that even people who don't want anything to do with God, God, by his common grace, has given them the capacity to to flourish, to accomplish great things, to create culture. He's given them the, the, the capacity to discover, to research, to know more about his creation. Yet, and here's what you need to be reminded of this morning. God has a particular love for his people. If you know Jesus Christ this morning and you worship God through Jesus Christ, you need to know this morning that you are uniquely cared for and specially loved. See, as Israel's reading this, they're going to understand, whoa, we are God's chosen people. That, that God has a special covenantal love for us. He's, we're, we're by all rights part of the line of Cain. But somehow, God has called us out by his sovereign grace and mercy. He smiled upon us. He has given us blessing upon blessing, not because of what he's done, what we've done, but because of what he's done. Because of his mercy, because of his grace, because he's slow to anger and abounding in love. If we will only have him, if we will only turn to him. See, Israel needed to know that, didn't they? Because they were journeying in a strange land. And there was armies all around them seeking to destroy them. There was pestilence and wilderness. And they were fighting the elements. And they rightly, not rightly, but understandably, would have been asking, has God forgotten us? And when they read chapter 5, though, the answer would have been a resounding no. You see, thousands of years by this time would have passed, and they would have read names like Enosh and Kenan and Jared, and guess what? They would have done just what you and I do when we read those names. We're, we're like, we don't know who those people are. We've we, never heard of them, or maybe we've heard of them, but we don't, we don't remember them. We... we we don't know them on an intimate basis, but guess what, Four Oaks? God does. God does. See, the, the, the world will not remember us. You'll be lucky if your great-grandchildren still fight. Well, it's different now with the internet. I don't know how this works. But you get what I'm saying, right? We think we're going to be remembered. Well, we know how this works. But it's always a reminder that whatever is going on in human history, however dark things might be, God's grace shines through. He knows his people, he calls his people by name, he recounts their names and their ages. Do you know that? That God, there is no one in the world who knows you more intimately and thoroughly and comprehensively than the living God of the universe. He knows your name. He knows your age, your real age. (laughs) He knows the hairs on your head. He knows what's happening. Nothing is a surprise to him. Susan and I were recently um, get together with a a couple from from out of town who's a pastor friend of, of mine. And we were praying about a difficult season that someone in the group was experiencing in their life. And a lot of times, I don't know about you, but when people are walking through difficult seasons, you, I find it hard to know exactly what to say, what, what exactly to pray. How do, I, how do I speak into this? Do I say nothing? I don't want to be like Job's friends who filled the, the air with words, but they were kind of like words to the wind, but I want to say something powerful or effective. And it was in that situation that this friend leaned over to the group And he just said, I I simply want to pray this. I pray that this will be impressed upon us. I pray that this will be known by all of us. Simply this. And he said one word, Emmanuel. Do you know, Emmanuel, that God is with us? That he has not forsaken us? Let me ask you a question this morning. Where in your life do you need to be reminded as God's child that he is Emmanuel, that he has not deserted you, he has not abandoned you, that his, where in your life do you need to see God's generational grace ultimately winning out? And let's be honest, those places might be very dark as it relates to a, a child or a spouse or a friend or a disease or a job or a financial situation. We all have those things that are unique to us that we must bear. Israel, Moses wanted them to read this and say, ah, yeah, we're in the middle of a wilderness. We're turning around. We're walking in circles. But Emmanuel, God is with us. Paul says very much the same thing in Romans chapter 8, and, and you've, if you've been a Christian, if you're part of God's family, you've heard it maybe a thousand times, but let it wash over you anew this morning. Paul says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. See, I, I believe this one in four oaks that God wants us to look at this obscure, hard to pronounce genealogy and remember, God is with me. God is gracious. God is for me. God is, God is going before me on my behalf for my good, for his glory. Where do you need this? To wash over you anew this morning. That's one observation that God's family especially loved and uniquely cared for. Second observation God's family has a real hope and a real future. Now, let me point out another difference between this genealogy and the one that we find in chapter four. You'll notice that there is a refrain. In fact, it's so common, we we read it so many times, it almost becomes rote, and it goes something like this. Thus, all the days of Mahaliel were 895 years, and then what? Then he died. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. You get get the idea, right? You, You anticipate what's going on here. See, it's, it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? That on one hand, we have this line of promise. We have this line of, of hope. That, that Cain's line is just completely just extinguished almost the image of God. but Yet we have this flicker of light. We have this flicker of hope. And so there's anticipation. There's, there's this sense of, yes, God's grace is winning today. Yet at the same time, Every time we come to that refrain, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. We're just being reminded once again, right, of the imminent reality of death. It's like taking a vacation this summer. I know many of you are traveling, going here, there, and everywhere. And what happens on the vacation? I mean, maybe I'm just being overly transparent. But, you know, the first days of the vacation are just like euphoria, right? Like, we're in the promised land, we're at the blessed destination, we're relaxed, we're unpacked, we're doing what people do on vacations, which I think is basically spend money, right? That's what we do. And, and, but something happens as the week goes along, doesn't it? It's almost like this thundercloud, this, this, this gathering storm behind your head. And, and you want to ignore it, but you just can't. What is it? Oh, well, this is going to have to end, right? We're going to have to pack up the, the car and pay the cleaning fee and, and, and get in the, I was going to say station wagon. That's very 70s. But you get what I'm saying. Get in the minivan and travel back. This is going to be over. It's just like this darkness that lurks. And see, and that's what, that's what this genealogy reminds us that life is. That, I, that life is wonderful. It's a gift, it's full of amazing things, children and marriages and trips and vacations and God's people. And I mean, we can go blessing upon blessing. But it's it's kind of like that, that, that imminent rain cloud that's right above your head. You're always reminded of what? Man, it's not going to last. Those kids are going to grow up. Our bodies are going to get older. Our parents are, are going to pass on from the scene our our friends are going to move away our you fill in the blank see it sounds realistic doesn't it and that's that's the whole point of of what of what we're doing here of what Moses is writing see we think about Adam and Eve for a second And it says they lived 900 years, and we're like, man, that sounds so good, doesn't it? But I want you to think about something. How many people did Adam and Eve have to see die from disease or accident or violence, even their own son, and realize, one, this is all because of us? Can you imagine that burden? (laughs) Can you imagine that burden? And also... This is not the way things are supposed to be. You see, and, and as humans, we all identify with this. Whether you're a Christian this morning or not, whether whether you've been in church, whether you acknowledge God, this is all an, an imminent reality we see on the horizon. No matter how awesome things are in our life from an earthly perspective, we know it's looming, right? And he died. And he died. And he died. So it's interesting that in the middle of this sort of endless procession of death, we come to the curious case of Enoch in verse 22, in verse 23. And what does it say about Enoch? It says, Enoch walked with God. Now understand something, this is more than just saying that Enoch lived a pious life or a moral life. It's there are lots of people in this world are living pious lives and moral lives, but they're not doing it before God. But see, Enoch walked with God. It signifies the, the deepest part of communion and intimacy and conversing and relationship. And as the Israelites are, are reading this genealogy and they're kind, of, they're kind of getting into this, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, then, he died. then they come to Enoch Who's in the seventh position, and it's like Moses is saying, Put the spotlight on this one. I want you to slow down. I want you to park it here for a second, Four Oaks. And I want you to understand what I'm saying. See, if you notice, go back to to chapter five, the first three verses. And when we read those about Adam and Eve, God created in his image, all those things, it sounds familiar, right? That's straight from Genesis 1 and 2. We've already covered that. Well, why is, why is Moses repeating that then? Because he wants us to remember what it was like in the garden. See, what was happening in the garden with Adam and Eve? They what? Walked with God in the cool of the day. They conversed with him. They had communion with him. They worshipped with him in eden and god is saying that's the way things are supposed to be and with my servant enoch and all who are part of my family i am raising them up so that they too may walk with god See, i think as the israelites are are reading this passage for the first time there's somebody else they would have thought about as well somebody else who walks with god and who was that moses who was their leader Remember, Moses tells us in Exodus 34 would go to the tent of meeting to do what? Meet with God, to walk with God. And it says that, that Moses had such intimate communion with God that God's glory would radiate from his face. And they had they to put a little, little veil, a little shower curtain over his head or else his, nobody could go to sleep at night, right? Because his face was, was radiating. And this was a privileged position for Moses, right? Only Moses could go to the tent of the meeting. Only Moses could meet with God. But everybody in their heart of hearts wanted to meet with God, wanted to walk with God. And here it says, Enoch walked with God. And immediately they would have been asking, and we should be asking, how. How does that happen? How does that work? How does one come to see God as it will face to face? And verse 23 points the way. Enoch, unique, not only that he walked with God, but what does it tell us in verse 24? It says, he walked with God and he was not, for he took him. In other words, the literal Hebrew is he could not be found. So, kids, here's a suggestion. If your parents are looking for you, and they can't find you, and they do find you, and they ask where you were, just say, I was walking with God. Okay, that's all you got to say. God, God took me, right? That's, that's what it literally means. He was there, but then he was not. Now, some might say, well, that's just Enoch. I mean, he was like, obviously, this super spiritual dude, and he had a, attained this highest level of, of spirituality. That's why God took him. And I just want to say, Forks, I don't think so. I don't think that's why this narration is here. I want you to think for a minute in the Old Testament, all of the super spiritual people that were not taken up. Moses wasn't taken up. David wasn't taken up. Isaiah wasn't taken up. Daniel wasn't taken up. Only, guess who, Elijah And that after a great season of despondency and despair as a gracious gift to Elijah, I think. No, no, I think there's a whole other reason why why God took him and why God has given us history, narration, story for us to remember. And it's simply this, that this would be a testimony to all future generations that Enoch was the down payment for eternal life. You see, God is saying, I set aside Enoch as a representative of my people. He didn't have to die. He doesn't, he doesn't have to face death. He walked with me. He conversed with me. This is what I'm doing for the family of God. This is, this is where life, this is where human history is headed do you have any, since we're speaking of genealogies and stuff, do you have any particular family stories or exploits or feats that you like to share with your kids or around the Thanksgiving table? Ways that your ancestors have distinguished themselves, right, through bravely, bravery or valor. You know, one of the, the, the urban legends growing up in our house is that we were at least a fourth, fourth Cherokee Indian Blood flowing through our veins, right? So my grandmother had cheekbones and black hair till she was 99. I mean, all those things. So we took the DNA test, and guess what? Not one drop. Not one drop of blood, right? But we still tell the story anyway, right? But see, this is supposed to function in the same way, except it's not myth, it's not reality. God took up Enoch, not because he was necessarily special, but because God wanted his people to have a testimony. To say, you see, that's what God's doing. That's where God is taking us. That one day we will walk with him. One day we will have eternal life. See, we we, we see here that that in a way, Enoch is sort of the the down payment in the line of Seth. It's God's guarantee, it's his promise To say, this is what I am ultimately doing. I am ultimately conquering death through the line, through the seed, through Jesus Christ. It's interesting, how does the New Testament begin? With a genealogy. And here, Matthew is tracing back Jesus all the way through the line of Seth to the person of Adam. What is Matthew telling us? Church, this is who you've been waiting for. This is is whom to place your hope. This is the one who has walked with God, who has seen God face to face. But even more than that, Jesus is not conversing with God face to face in the tabernacle. No, no, no. Jesus is the tabernacle, He is the tent of meeting. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, what God offers us through this genealogy this morning is not some abstract bit of historical research to, to place the memory. It's not the reconstruction of the human ancestral line, although it's relevant for that as well. But it's simply to say, are you a part of this family? Do you realize that you don't have to go to a place, you don't have to go to a temple, you don't have to go to a tent of meeting to talk with God face to face. In fact, Jesus is the tent of meeting. Jesus is the Son of God. He has come in righteousness. He has, he has come as a man. He has lived and died and rose again so that you and I, what? Can walk with God. God. Do you know the God-man Jesus Christ? Have you conversed with Him? Have you walked with Him? This is available for any and all who are part of the family of God, who've entrusted their life to Jesus Christ. Folks, we have a real hope and a real future. We are uniquely loved and specially cared for And if you don't know this Jesus, we would love to talk to you about him. Grab one of us after the service. Let's pray.